Hi, everyone. Welcome along to De- Definitive Breaks. I'm Tina and you're tuned into Radio Karim. On today's show, I'm super excited, ecstatic really, to be um, speaking with Jane Oakley, who is a former Matilda who has played as a defender for Australian women's national soccer team, has been an assistant coach to the Matildas and was awarded the 2000 Australian Sports Medal and inducted into the Football Australia Hall of Fame in 2004. Jane has been a tireless pioneer of women's football for more than 20 years. Welcome to the show, Jane. Hello. Hello, Tina. Thank you. Oh, great. Great to hear from you. How good is life right now for you? (laughs) Oh, it's surreal, actually. Um, You know, to be, I'm fortunate enough that I've been to all of the Matilda games and a couple of other games and just the support inside and outside of the stadium by the Australian public has been phenomenal and sometimes I have to pinch myself because I just can't believe that women's football slash soccer um, is at this scale and being recognised for for what it is. So I'm on a high, I must say. You're on a high. It's just such a great time for women's football. It is. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I I just think in your – like in your dreams, do you – Do you ever think Australia would have hosted a World Cup? No, I was actually talking to some of the Matilda alumni a couple of days ago saying, oh, my gosh, can you, like, wind the clocks back, say, 20, 30 years? Would you have imagined that women's football would be at this scale in Australia? And and none of us could really quite fathom that, you know, like we're glad it is because, you know, it deserves to be. But, yeah, it is just it, – it's just blown me away in terms of, um, you know, the performances of every team at the World Cup mm-hmm. and just how it's been embraced by the Australian uh, public. Oh, I know. There's so many young girls and boys of all ages who are just drawn to football now. Like the, the roaring success of the Matildas as well. Everyone's just swept in the vibe, aren't they? Absolutely. Like the other night, we were walking out of the Sydney Stadium, and mm-hmm. obviously, you see lots of boys and girls in the Australian strip. But there was grown men with, um, you know, with uh, the players' names on the back of their the, sh- the shirts, and I was just like, "Wow!" Oh, you know? that's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. So, let's start off. So, tell me a bit about your junior football career. Career, and was there an exact moment when you thought I can play for Australia? Yeah, I I started playing fairly late. I was 14 because there was no sort of structures for young girls back then to play football. And I remember kicking around with, um, you know, my neighbours and my friends and obviously we'd be in the backyard kicking around. And one of my neighbours used to play, he was only young obviously, and he used to play for North Dandenong. Yes. And I always wanted to play but there was no opportunity and no one really introduced me into the sport. And Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure back then that they would let a girl play in the boys' teams. Um, so it wasn't until 1980, which is when I first got introduced to women's football, and it was through my neighbour, and she said, do you want to come training? I'm, I'm going uh-huh. training. Do you want to come? Um, so that's how it started. So at 14, I went straight into um, open-aged women's competition because there was no junior structures uh-huh. and started playing for North Dandenong. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, but when I thought, and I suppose at North Dandenong, we had a player called Karen Hume, and she used to be a, a left fullback. She was a, such a, a pocket rocket. She was um, dynamic and fantastic. And Karen had made the Australian team. So that was probably my first exposure to, hey, this is a possibility. And um, I went to national championships in 1982, and then in 83 mm-hmm. I didn't go because of um, HSC. Okay. Um, but in 84, I went and played for the state team for Victoria and then played consistently till 1995. And I got selected in 1984 to play um, in the national squad. So that was really my my turning point. Okay. Right. Wow. So I wanted to ask you, how did you get into the, the squad eventually? How hard it, was it for you to become a Matilda? back then um look i was i was pretty fortunate i was um i'm a left footer predominantly and Mm -hmm. um you know they're they're obviously they were more dominated by right footer players than left sided players okay um so that definitely helped me and um i can't say i was technically gifted tina but i just worked on those sort of attributes that i knew that i was good at and um, had to work really hard. So, you know, a lot of players from my era talk about the fact that we had to train with men and boys and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff to really sharpen up our abilities and our decision-making in quicker timeframes. Um, so, it, look, I was lucky because in 1984 when I played in the state team, I was the highest-scoring um forward in the national championships Mm -hmm. yeah so that sort of opened the door for me and obviously I got into the squad because I stood out because I scored goals okay so your family Um, supported you back then oh my family were not really that um you know that sort of connected and and interested in football to be Uh honest and I was really fortunate that the club that I played for, North Dandenong, that I mentioned at the yes. start, had older players, and and they really shepherded me around, mm-hmm. and you know, and presented those opportunities for me. Okay, so how how old were you when you started playing professionally, or? Oh uh, well, I started playing club football at fourteen. Oh, yep, that's so, right. You know, yeah, and then got in the national team when I was eighteen. Yeah, okay, so it's not like you're. Um, working full time as well. Oh yeah, well I was and playing um, soccer at the same time. Yeah, all of that. So God, yeah, that must have to, been hard. Yeah, throughout my whole playing career, I worked full time and trained full time pretty much. So you, you know, you didn't have much time for anything else. Okay. So, what countries did playing for Australia Australia take you? Any highlights from those travels on and off the park? Oh, yeah. Look, I reckon we went to some lots of Asia. Like in the mm-hmm. early days in the 80s, we did lots of Asia. So, you know, China, Japan, um, Oceania, so New Zealand, uh, those sorts of areas we did a lot of in the early days. And then sort of into the 90s, we travelled over to Europe and stuff like that. So obviously played the World Cup in Sweden in 95, but um, we toured places like America um, and also the United Kingdom. Uh, so they were sort of the places that I went to, uh, not to the scale of where the girls go today, which is just phenomenal. Mm, mm. So you mentioned Sweden just then, um, um, the match that you played in. I, mm. I wanted to ask, how big was the crowd back then? What was, you know, what's the difference between back then and now? 
Yeah, look, it's really interesting because, Tina, I remember going to an Invitational World Cup in 1988 with the national team, mm-hmm. and that was in China. And we played to pack stadiums. You couldn't hear yourself think. It was so noisy and, and so foreign for us Australians because mm-hmm. we were so used to playing, you know, with very small, you know, you might have 100 people at a, at a national championship, you know, not, not very big crowds at all. And mm-hmm. we went to China where we had packed stadiums. So I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm assuming it would have been around the sort of thirty to 40,000 in China. Okay. Um and then when we went to Sweden, I, you know, I can't, I know it was noisy, but I can't remember the, the um, crowd sizes and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it was, it was well, well supported. There were packed stadiums in Sweden as well at the World Cup, mm-hmm. which I think you'll find is pretty typical that where the World Cup's held, there generally is really strong crowds and, and support uh-huh. for those games. Okay. So uh, the level of funding was, what level of funding was there throughout your career? Was women's football supported well? No, not really. Um, uh-huh. So in the early days, um, I remember when I got in the national team in 1984 and my first trip was to Taiwan. Yes. And I had to find about, I think it was about $1,300. And back then that was a lot of money and I didn't work. I just finished school. Um, and you know, I had to go to mum and dad and ask them for that money and the first answer was no. Um, and I remember begging them. I think they just got sick of me in the end and, and gave me the money. <laughs> um, so I got to go and then that really drove that passion. And then after that, like I, I didn't go to uni because I was so focused on my, my football mm. and playing and making sure I worked so that I could pay for my tours. Yeah. Um, and, and then I remember a trip to Japan in 91 and it was the first time that the Matildas or the Australian team got some allowance and that's because we were travelling with the Socceroos uh-huh. and the Socceroos got a daily allowance and we they actually matched it so that we had that daily allowance as well. Oh, good. Um, so th- that's the first time I can remember getting uh-huh. some some money. Um, I can't remember how much it was. It wouldn't have been a heap of money, but to us it was a heap of money. Um, and then in obviously from from sort of the you know early nineties onwards, our trips were paid for. So okay. when I went to the World Cup in Sweden, that was all paid for. We didn't get paid, but you know we had no expenses. Right. I even heard that um, you also paid for your own strips and tracksuit pants back then yes yep um i remember definitely paying for all of our tracksuit gear and stuff like that and obviously you weren't sponsored by people so you had to buy your shin pads your boots and all that sort of thing um the strips were interesting the strips were pretty much old hand-me-down strips from old soccer teams. i heard um and players had to sew their own national team crests on their tracksuit jackets with a you know needle and thread and oh yep i remember sitting there doing that um on one tour sitting there um sewing on badges on on our gear Mm. uh, which is just you know people probably can't fathom that the players of today would not even get that at all um and neither should they but, uh, yes, they were the sorts of things we went to and we, you know, I remember my last playing strip in Sweden. It's it's massive. I pulled it out of the drawer the other day and I reckon I could fit two of me in it, <laughs> you know. So it's huge. 
I know, I know. And I, I also read somewhere that you, you had to do letter drops to raise football awareness back then. Like it wasn't yeah. that big. No, it wasn't. It, it, we really did struggle. And to be honest, I, you know, I didn't tell too many people I played because it was sort of frowned upon that you played what was perceived as a or viewed as a male-dominated sport. So you didn't sort of go around telling too many people that, that you played football, soccer. Uh, and, yeah, we, you know, so you're also very cautious about advertising women's soccer, but you're always talking to other potential girl, girls and women in terms of finding players to come and play for, you know, your club club side. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that was quite tricky. So, yeah, you know, and everyone in the national team – We'll talk about various stories in how they've gone about fundraising so they can tour with the national team or raise awareness. So you're absolutely right. Mm. At, so at what point was it possible for females to be fully professional football players? Yeah, it sort of started to – America in the 90s, it was sort of the early um, – so I think it was around about 91. They'd actually just won the World Cup uh, in um, – where was it? Was that – no, they'd won the Olympic Games in Atlanta uh-huh. and I think they'd won the World Cup in 95. So that really fast-tracked the, the game in America and they set up an established uh, professional league. Okay. So players were, you know, a couple of players from Australia went over to America and and tried their, their um, you know, luck in securing a position. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was sort of when there was – a little bit of professionalism and some of the players went over to Scandinavian countries and, and to England because they knew that they could get greater competition and improve their skills. And I don't know how they coped in, in those times because they would have had very limited funding to do it. It would have been self-funded mm. most of it. Wow. Jeez, different times. Um, mm. can, can you tell us how the Matilda's name came about? Yeah, look – I, I recall, because I was in the squad at that stage when they were saying, you know, we need to have a name. We need this, uh, you know, the Socceroos or, or the Australian men's team's got the Socceroos. Mm-hmm. The women need something. And what I can recall vaguely was there was a competition and people were invited to put forward names. And that's sort of how it came about. And there were several names that came back to the Australian women's team at the time. And I recall one of them being the Matildas. Uh-huh. And I screwed my nose up at did it, you? I must admit. I did. <laughs> which I look back now and think, oh, what was I thinking? But um, And look, it's proved to be fantastic, really catchy. And and now it's a worldwide brand. So, I know. Uh, yeah, so that's my limited knowledge. I was so focused on football, all that sort of stuff uh-huh. happened on the periphery that, you know, I didn't really um, uh, grab hold of it and think about it too clearly, obviously. Oh. Okay, so I've got to ask this question. I, w- I want to talk to you about the famous nude calendar. How did you yeah. feel about it at the time? Look, I we were so desperate to try and get a profile and, you know, we wanted to – get out there and really promote the fact that you had this group and structures of really dedicated athletes who were working tirelessly to play for Australia mm-hmm. and also holding down full-time jobs or part-time jobs or, you know, and everyone's story differs. And at the time, I thought, I sort of understand why we want to do it. Um, and I think my view on it now is very different to back then. Back then was all about trying to get a profile for the sport and lift the profile of the sport. If you were to ask me the question now, I'd say absolutely not. 
it's um would you have done it uh no i was asked whether i would participate Uh and i said no um and i'm so glad i made that decision Uh yeah i i sort of read somewhere that um the nude calendar got the matildas in trouble with the australian government is that right I don't know. I haven't. To be honest, I I didn't hear that. Um, uh-huh. I know they wanted you know, to raise money publicly for the team. I mean, you know, if they needed to raise money. Yeah, I think it's just that we, you know, we really scraped by. It was really tough times. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's no use talking about it now because look at where the platform is now and the sport is now and that's what it's all about. But uh-huh. at the time, it was really difficult mm-hmm. and, you know, you just had no profile. You're yeah. really underrated. Like I, I remember, not necessarily with the national team, we used to have fairly good training facilities, yes. but like club club training facilities were appalling, you know, like it was always about the men first and, and the women were chucked on the car park under streetlights mm. or or not allowed to train on the, on oh. the ground because it was too wet and it would chew it up for the men on Saturday. Um, so, you know, there was this real drive on improving and building awareness of women's football. So I understand the intent. Yes. Um, was it the right approach? Well, I don't know. It got some profile, but it obviously wasn't the profile we were really looking for. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so I want to ask you, what was it like to represent, you know, your country in the World Cup? Oh, it <laughs> You know, sometimes I wish I could just take myself back there and replay it because oh. it's really phenomenal. That opportunity to stand there um, is... Is it on you know, YouTube? Really, is, is it on YouTube? Oh, yeah, there's a couple of things. That, but not like, you know, just being able to sort of stand in the moment uh-huh. and take in your national anthem and um, and be there with your teammates. It's just fantastic. And it really challenged me as well technically um, you know, I look back now and think, God, oh, I wish I had better access to better training, and uh-huh. I, I wish I could have been a like play now and with what I know now. Um, but yeah, it was just such a fantastic time in my life, and I wouldn't change it for anything. Okay. I was. Oh, sorry. I just took a breather then. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the most important quality for a successful football player? I think you've got to be really dedicated mm-hmm. and you've just got to work extremely hard. So, you know, and, and pretty much your life has just got to revolve around, you know, obviously balance is really important, but you've got to be just so committed and so focused on getting to that end, end game. Mm-hmm. This is Mindy Mawang. You're listening to Radio Karam. And we're back now. I wanted to ask you, who was your biggest rival and why? 
Actually, actually I was ref- yeah, reflecting on that, thinking <laughs> it's really hard from a national team perspective because we, you know, we would only have like a tour once a year. Uh-huh. Um, and leading up to the World Cup, we probably had a couple more. So you didn't really get to know some of these international players to a high level. Um, so when I think about some of my most um, biggest rivals, it's probably like a club club football, you know, mm-hmm. and um, you know we used to have North Dandenong and Greensboro used to be really competitive, mm-hmm. and you, you know either either one of those teams could win on the day, and and I remember having many tussles with um, their defenders like um, you know Carolyn Monk and Janine McPhee. Uh, would would hassle me to death and and uh, pull shirts and and do whatever to mm-hmm. try and slow me down, which uh, I understand now. But at the time, I, it used to frustrate me. But um, and then if I think back to the national team, you know, probably one of the biggest games in the World Cup was against America. We had quite a difficult draw. We had Denmark, China, and America, mm-hmm. and. Against America, I, I was playing left fullback and playing against Mia Hamm. So if you if you Google Mia Hamm, she was probably the biggest thing since sliced bread in okay. America back then. And a phenomenal player. What a talented okay. player. Just amazing. Um, and so I spent a lot of time trying to make sure that she didn't get a ball inside the box or have a shot. Um, and... I think I did okay. Like you know, um, I can't remember her scoring whilst whilst uh, whilst I was on. I had to. I got subbed in the second half because I had a bit of a an issue with um, a, a, a groin muscle. Mm-hmm. Muscle. So, um, but yeah, that that's probably some of my rivals mm-hmm. that were quite challenging. Any funny funniest teammate? There's oh, always a funny one. There is there is a funny one. I have to say Janine McPhee. Janine played um, for Victoria and also in the national team with me and she she's just funny. She'd get up to all sorts of things and um, make you laugh a lot. So um, and, and I must say we're still good mates today, which I really um, cherish. Oh, that's good. So so Stranger's teammate or an incident while you're on tour, I, you know, I know what happens on tour stays on tour tell us something <laughs> <laughs> well what I can do I won't I won't single anyone out but I just one of the things that stays really clear in my mind and I hope not to offend anyone but the Australian team went over in the 80s to China I actually sorry it was Taiwan in 1984 uh-huh. and we had this beautiful banquet dinner and obviously their food is very different to the westernized food mm-hmm. and we're all little uncomfortable with with what was getting served up and at one stage we got a bit excited because they said next serving is chicken soup and Mm -hmm. all of us said oh fantastic chicken soup great anyway with that the bowl comes to the table and we hear this squeal from across the way and it was the New Zealand team and they had stuck their their spoon or whatever it was into the soup and hit what was a full chicken. So the chicken Ooh. had been plucked, but it was fully, you know, in oh. one piece oh, okay. in, in the soup. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that sort of freaked us out a little bit, I must okay. say. We just weren't sort of used to that sort of thing back then. Um, and we're very immature, obviously. Yeah. Oh. So that was probably an incident that stays clearly in my mind. Oh, all right. Funny. <laughs> Funny as. So who has been your biggest influence on your career? Who would be? Yeah, a difficult one. It's really dependent on time. If I think at club, when I first started at club, it was Arthur Hill who coached the girls and he used to incentivise me. If I, I'd get a dollar for every goal I scored. So, of course, 
naturally I became very um, aggressive, very attacking in my style of play, which I think paid off later uh-huh. in my playing career. So Arthur's got to get a mention here. <laughs> um, he, you know, um, Jim Southern was another great coach at state level uh-huh. and Jim Jim was really fantastic. He allowed he set set the game up and he allowed me to have a very flexible role with how I played the game. Um, so he was fantastic and a real mentor in terms of my development mm-hmm. in those sort of teenage years, the later teenage years, the early 20s. And then I think from a national team perspective, uh, for me, the coach that was able to sort of get the most out of me, and oh, I must say another state coach is Jeff Olver too. Uh-huh. Jeff came and coached the state team and I learned a lot from Jeff actually. He was probably the better technical coach that I've I've worked with over my career mm. and I learned a lot about using space and working off players which I hadn't really been taught before about um, and then the national team I, I think was really Steve Darby Steve was one of the best coaches in terms of managing people he was a great communicator he cared for you he spoke mm-hmm. he really reinforced um, your strengths um, he supported you if you stuffed up. It didn't matter. He was there to support you and he always sort of, you know, was positive in his mm. approach with you. Mm. Um, and I remember a little thing Steve did which really sort of gave me confidence that I can play in the national team and play well was he sent me a, uh, he would send you a letter in the post with this is the positions that you're likely to play mm-hmm. in. These are your strengths. This is why you're in the national team. Um, and I'll never forget that because that was really um, heartwarming and really gave me confidence. Mm. So how close are the ex-players? How tight is the bond? Oh, look, it's pretty good. You know, considering we don't get to see each other very often, mm-hmm. we're, like we get on really well. I've maintained some close friendships with some of the players from Sydney and uh, northern New South Wales and Queensland I don't get to see the Queensland girls very often, mm-hmm. but, you know, this series has been fantastic because the alumni has got together and we've all just sort of, you know, given each other a big embrace, a big hug and had a great chat about mm-hmm. the good old times and how fantastic the game is now. Yeah. So we've all maintained that connection and bonded. Obviously, some people you get on better than others. Mm-hmm. But I've just enjoyed catching up with everyone mm. and seeing them and seeing what they're up to and what they've done in life. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. So do you still mm. play? No, I'm too old for that. <laughs> um, I wouldn't embarrass myself, uh, you know. I think once you stop, you can't go back is my motto. Um, so, yeah. Oh, okay. So, wh- so when you know there's, you know, 75,000 plus people watching the Matildas, how proud are you and, you know, what other, what emotions do you feel? Oh, I'm so, I'm just so proud. Um, the, the current Matildas are technically fabulous. They, you can mm. tell that they work extremely hard. Yeah. They're really great girls too. Like we've had the chance to speak to a couple of them and they've been lovely. Um, you know, I just get so emotional when I see the game at its current sort of level and where mm. it's at. Uh, it really makes makes me, yeah, emotional. And uh, sometimes, like I do a, a session for a radio station, a station, an update on the scores, and mm-hmm. they play the crowd going off oh, before really? they start talking oh, to me. Amazing, and it it really gets me emotional every time. So it's just fabulous. Oh. 
you know, given that this is a home World Cup and the team features, you know, a golden generation of players mostly in their prime, yeah. are, like, the Matildas good enough, like, are they a good enough team to win the World Cup? You know, what are your thoughts on their chances? Yeah, look, I, they've got some really tough, tough competition mm-hmm. and they have done extremely well. When you think about where Australian women's football mm-hmm. has come from, they are surpassing, in my view, all expectations mm. in terms, you know, this this team, this this um, nucleus of team are, have got some really talented players. And, you know, they've got France next up in the quarters, mm. and I think they stand a really good chance against France. Um, they beat them in the friendly just before the World Cup started, 1-0. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think their confidence is just growing, Tina. So I think yeah. anything's possible. I, You know, obviously they've got some stiff competition and and they're playing against teams that have had, re- you know, lots of money invested in, in structures for young players up to women for a long time. Mm. I think they've got a really good chance. Yeah, I yeah. hope so. I, well, I think yeah. so too. They've, yeah. they've just been marvellous. Which teams, you know, have you enjoyed watching during this tournament? Ah, well, you know, I watched the Germans play in their first game and I thought, gee, they look good. You know, uh-huh. everyone's a bit rusty in their first game and uh, they're just moving the ball around well. They're strong, they physically uh-huh. compete well in the air. Um, but they're out now. Yeah, I know. Um, so, uh, but, you know, we watched the Netherlands play the other day too and I don't think it was their best performance, but, again, really disciplined in their structures um, you know, the, the the speed of the ball pass is just right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you just look at things like that. Some teams under-hit the ball, over-hit the ball. They were just, you know, they're hitting the ball just nicely and playing lots of one-twos off each other. So uh, the Netherlands are looking really uh-huh. good, I think. Oh, wow. Um, you think? <laughs> yeah, and I think J- Japan and obviously England. Um, England's lost James, Lauren, Lauren, Lauren James. Uh-huh. Uh, she's got a red card, so she's out of the tournament now, which is really disappointing. So I think they'll miss her. I'm not sure how they'll go for the rest of the tournament, mm. but they've been they've looked good as well. Has there been any players that you've been, you know, most impressed by? Well, I think James is definitely one. I'm really impressed uh-huh. by her. Um, very good player. And in terms of the Matildas, yes. when I look at the Matildas, I think Claire Hunt, the one of the central defenders. She's done exceptional. Uh, I really rate her. She's had a great tournament so far. So I think Claire, you know, Caitlin Ford's been another one mm-hmm. that um, particularly the other night against Denmark, she mm. she just was sensational running at players and taking them on and, uh, yeah. And, I, you know, and then if you look at um, Katrina uh, Gorey as well, mm-hmm. Gorey, you know, she's another one that's just technically really smart. Yeah. Great player. Put some great through balls along with Mary Fowler as well. So they've got some exceptional players in, in the Matildas team. So who do you think's the biggest threat? Country? Uh, yeah, well, you know, the biggest threat really at the moment for the Matildas, are you talking, Tina? Yep. I reckon if um, if the Matildas can get past France, I know they beat France in lead up to the World uh-huh. Cup, but France has got some really competent players and they're very disciplined. Um, I think France is obviously a big challenge for the Matildas. Mm-hmm. They they are absolutely ready for it, and I reckon they can beat France, but it's not going to be easy. So for me, that's their biggest challenge. And really then, 
you know, it depends on who they face off on in the semi-final and hopefully the final. Oh, it's going to be nail-biting. Oh, <laughs> I can't wait. So I want to talk to you about Sam Kerr. Um, yes. Obviously, she's a hot topic. Do you start her versing France-Morocco on Saturday? I think it depends on how she's pulled up from that little 10-minute uh-huh. uh, run that she had against Denmark, uh, in which she performed really well. She had a, mm-hmm. she came on and had a shot that went over the bar, so you could tell she was a bit bit rusty. She is an exceptional player, so talented, fantastic in the air. I'll probably take a bit of a risk and play her if she, you know, if the medical staff say she's fit and she's, um, you know, what we can't afford for her to do is risk further injury and mm. um, it, it have long-term impact on her contracts at Chelsea and, and her future. Yeah. Um, so I, I would start her. You would start her. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, sorry, I've lost my track right. now. So what advice would you give, okay, this is my daughter, a 13-year-old yeah. girl who wanted to play or take football seriously? Yeah, look, I think you have to be, as I mentioned before, you have to be really committed and really dedicated. Um, I think at that age, at 13 too, you've just got to have fun. Um, So have fun, enjoy it. And one of the things that I look back on now is make sure you get access to really good coaching because that will really um, help you, you know, progress in your development. Mm, So... Oh, that's really nice. So, you know, my football-loving daughter, Phoebe, wanted to ask (laughs) you some quick questions. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Oh, here we go. Have you met any of your present Matildas? Uh, Have you met any of them? No, well, I've only met on Zoom. So we had a couple of Zooms with them prior to the World Cup Uh and we um, caught up with Ali Carpenter, which was fantastic. Nice. And Claire Polkinghorne. So. Um, and also Lydia, Lydia Williams was the other one, but I miss that Zoom. Um, and it was fantastic because it was only a, a small intimate group and we were able to sort of pose a few questions to the girls and um, they were just fantastic. Oh. They, were so, they were so nice and humble and down to earth uh, and very passionate about football, very much looking forward to the World Cup. Mm, awesome. I mean, you could see on the telly the other night how mm. compassionate they were when, you know, Denmark lost mm. and the Matildas yeah. were going, comforting them. And Well, one of the stories I read this morning, Tina, was that Ellie Carpenter, who I've got a lot of time for, she's an amazing footballer, mm. she plays for Lyon and one of her teammates plays for Denmark and she was obviously very distraught after the game. And you see this photo of Ellie going up behind her and just giving her a hug mm. and and talking to her and I just thought and what Ali said was when Ali did her knee so her ACL uh-huh. that particular player look, really took a lot of time to ke- look you know keep an eye out for her and care for her and look after her sort of thing so I just think that's what the game's all mm, about that's right so I wanted to know who plays oh she wanted to know <laughs> who plays your <laughs> position now and what number oh, were you back then yeah, well, in the national team, the last couple of tournaments that I played in, I was number three. Uh-huh. Um, so I was sort of a, an over, a, you know, overlapping left back. So really, it's Steph Catley who plays that, and she plays it far better than I ever ever <laughs> dreamt of playing. She is she, again another exceptional player that I forgot to mention previously as well. 
Um, so, yeah, Steph Catley's in the position that I was playing in the last couple of tournaments with the national team. Okay, okay. Um, who did you look up to? Who was your Sam Kerr or star player? Mm. Wow. Um, we had such amazing players. I think in the early 80s it was probably a Julie Dolan and most people have heard of Julie played for New South Wales and technically she was very, very gifted on the ball. Okay. Um, as I as I got a bit older, um, you know, in my latter time of playing, you know, like a goalkeeper like Claire Nichols, mm-hmm. she, she was from Queensland and she came into the national team as a young 16-year-old along with Lisa Casagrande, another six, young 16-year-old, and those two players were exceptional. Mm-hmm. Fast, confident, technically strong and gifted you know, so mm. I, you know, in, later in my career, I looked, I looked up to those younger players to go, oh wow, look at these wonderful, talented players coming through. Oh, lovely, lovely. If you weren't a professional footballer, what would you have been? Wow. Yeah. Well, I never. <laughs> I don't think I ever became a professional footballer, but um, obviously it it dominated a lot of my life early in life. Uh-huh. Um, in my early days, I really wanted to be a PE teacher. So oh, that would have been. Um, yeah, and I think because I obviously didn't choose to go on to uni, I I wanted to focus in on soccer. I never got that opportunity. So, yeah, back then it was sort of PE teacher was mm-hmm. one of the things that I was pretty keen on. Okay. Well, I think that would have suited you perfectly. Um, if if you, you have a very accomplished uh, coaching career, are you still involved with football in, like on Matildas on any level? No, no. I sort of um, – so I worked with the Matildas on an Australian tour. Mm-hmm. Oh, when would that have been? That must have been 97, I think it was. And then I did a lot of coaching with the National Training Centre, the Victorian team. So invested a lot of time setting up like a an equivalent VIS for women and girls mm-hmm. and really loved that. And I did that for probably eight to ten years and – um, I found I found it really difficult with the national team. If I'd be honest, Tina, it was very it's 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 very oh, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but it's very oh, blokey, yeah, um, and, and very political, and yeah, I just found it quite difficult, mm-hmm. and I wasn't confident. And I look back thinking, you know, I if I was confident, and I should have been confident in my ability, I think it would have been a lot easier for me. Mm. Um, and it's one of the things that I think players coming up now is back yourself, you know, have that confidence yes. to you are good enough and go for it. Oh, that's great. So you've achieved a lot in the game. Jane, what would be your next goal or challenge within the sport? Oh, I just want to really see the game continue to mm. grow and prosper. And one of the really driving factors is getting a lot a lot more participation both boys and girls mm-hmm. and having really high quality coaches at that level so that we can feed more players mm-hmm. into national teams um, Victoria's always been fairly light on in terms of the number of players going on to play in the mm-hmm. national team so I would love to see us holding down more positions in the national mm-hmm. teams okay great so lucky last Jane yep who's going to win the cup Who's going to get win the World Cup? It's the Matildas, isn't it? Yep, of course. Who else is there? <laughs> I know, I know. I hope so. I hope so. No, well, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they'll do us. They've already done done us proud. And oh, they'll continue they? to work. 
so hard. I know they're very passionate about winning. Um, they won't say that publicly, mm-hmm. uh, but they're very keen to win. Um, and, yeah, they're heading in the right direction at the moment. Mm, yeah, I know. Mm. Oh, so it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all your amazing stories with us, Jane. I wish you all the best and enjoy the rest of the World Cup. Thank you so much, Thank Tina. you for being here. Go the Matildas. Go the Matildas <laughs> and thank you to Radio Cam too. Thank you. Bye. 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 